So all this month we've been talking about uh, the expectations that come with uh, the month of December and the season of Advent and how oftentimes our, the way that we understand whether something is, is good or bad or really good or really bad has to deal more with our expectations and how they match up with reality than what actually happens. Um, this was put in crystal clear technicolor vision for me a week ago. Um, last Thursday, my sons had their preschool Christmas party. And there's a Santa Claus who came in and he looked the part. I mean, white beard, jolly belly, um, you know, the red velvet suit, the whole nine yards. It was the sort of thing that you walked in, you're like, this might actually be the Santa Claus. Um, and for my middle son, Sam, he was the Santa Claus. So when he went and sat on the Santa Claus's lap, and Santa asked him, little boy, what would you like? And Sam said, I'd like a Batman Lego set. In Sam's mind, the expectation was there. And when, when Santa Claus reached down and picked up a package that was about the size you might expect a Lego Batman set to be, it was set. Sam was convinced that in this package was a Lego Batman set. Now, Sam was the ninth of his 11 classmates to go through the line to see Santa. And the eight classmates ahead of him had all gotten the same gift in the same package of a green elf and peppermint patties. But Sam knew it was different for him because he had told Santa what he wanted. So when he opened his package and inside was a green elf and peppermint patties, he was inconsolable. Furious! Downtrodden. Because the expectation was set. He knew, he knew that Santa had heard his request, that he was magic and had given him exactly what he wanted. But reality did not meet his expectations. And I think sometimes Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. And sometimes I think that's because we aren't expecting the right sorts of things. When we look at when Jesus was born, uh, the expectation of what the Messiah would be um, wasn't someone who would be born in a barn in Bethlehem. Because the Magi who came from the east didn't go to Bethlehem uh, and start doing a tour of the barns at the outskirts of the city. They went to Jerusalem. They went to the palace. They went to Herod and said, hey... A king has been born. We want to see him. And Herod was like, I want to too. 
In Matthew chapter 2, we read these words that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. The text continues, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd for my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now, we know some things about the Herods. Um, They were prolific builders in Jerusalem. The Herodium, the Second Temple, I mean, just incredible building projects under, uh, under their time and power. Uh, we also know that they were corrupt as the day is long. So Herod probably didn't really want to go and worship this newborn child. Um, and we also are pretty confident of that because... Uh, he would go on to kill all the children under two in Bethlehem. Um, but let's, let's pick the text back up here at, at verse 9. In the Magi, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until after the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. I read this and it's put into incredible clarity um, how different God's way of solving problems is from mine. Um, because if I'm God and, and I want to fix things, uh, my messianic narrative doesn't look like this. It looks like the Terminator. I send the Austrian oak through time and space. I send a He-Man, someone who is going to uh, not get messed with. I'm not sending some six or seven or eight pound helpless infant. And I'm certainly not sending the Son of God into the world 
into a family of refugees who are on the run, living in a land that is not their own. I read this story and I wonder, does does God not understand the way privilege works? You don't become king as the son of a refugee carpenter? No, like, you start out a prince. Or at least the son of a duke who has, you know, aspirations to kill a king, right? Doesn't God understand power dynamics? There is nothing about uh, Matthew chapter 2 that I read this and say, oh yeah, this is going to work. This is the way to bring the Messiah into the world. But maybe that's the point. Maybe the Father knows what He's doing in sending the Son to be born as helpless as you and I were when we were infants. To a poor, young, refugee girl from a backwater town. Uh, Maybe in doing this, God is demonstrating something important for us to understand who God is. Because the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus, and the death of Jesus, teaches us that God does not overpower us. Rather, God submits to us. And that sounds wrong, uh, doesn't it? Uh, like, this, this idea of creator submitting to creation just sounds dirty. Uh, it sounds weak. It sounds bad. I, I don't like it. Like the way the words come out of my mouth, it just bleh. But I'm not sure how else we can understand the life of Christ. Because the incarnation didn't come with an Arnold Schwarzenegger type character being sent through time and space. Stealing the biker jacket off a dude hasta la vista baby style, right? The Messiah was born a helpless infant. Uh, We look at Jesus' ministry. Uh, The first miracle, it came as a favor to his mother. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. When on trial, he doesn't even defend himself much less calling down the company of heaven to slaughter the Romans who are putting him on the cross. Our our Orthodox uh, brothers and sisters go so far as to say that the essential feature of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is that they exist forever as a community of mutual submission. Uh, The image that one of my seminary professors Uh, gave us to think about this is like um, a cord that is braiding itself with with the strands coming into perfect alignment, following under the strand that went before it, this idea of, of all the pieces working in harmony and mutual submission. In Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says, 
You've heard that it is said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. For if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles and give to the one who asks you, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. For you've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Bible shows us that divine love is a love that submits. It's a love that puts the needs of others before our own. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus just doesn't fit our expectations for what a God on earth, messianic king, is supposed to look like. Because instead of coming as a conquering hero, instead of overwhelming and overpowering creation, instead of forcing creation into submission, we see Jesus submitting to us. And that leaves us with a choice. Knowing that that we serve a God who exists in mutual deference, in mutual submission, we can try and take advantage of that kindness. We can hope that, that God can be our own magic Santa that will give us exactly what we want when we want it. Or we can follow his lead. We can get into the same pattern of submission. And in so doing, we can find ourselves in the story of God. We can experience life in relationship with the God of the universe. We can choose to respond to the God uh, who comes not to overwhelm us, but to love us by responding in love and obedience as well. Let's pray. Most holy and gracious God, you come not as a conquering bodybuilding, freak of nature, strong man, (coughs) but as a child. You don't come to dominate, but to love. And Lord, we are amazed that you choose to love us. 
Lord, in, in a world that tells us that we need to be <clears throat> looking out for ourselves. That only the strong survive. That looking out for number one is what's most important. Lord, give us the courage to believe that your way truly is better. That we can live lives of submission. That we can live lives where we trust you and not our own strategies or our own strength. But that when we choose obedience, that we find ourselves in the middle of your great story. Experiencing the life that you desire for us in relationship with you. Lord, give us the courage to be obedient. Give us the courage to conform our wills to yours. Give us the courage to choose your way, especially when it's hard. And may we experience the joy that comes from living in relationship with you. Amen.